after all of these weeks of protesting, of fighting, of pushing for political change, to now have have it culminate in this of like parliament voting for a super undemocratic move forward is really frustrating. There were elements of a of a coup, and it, in fact, this was a coup. I have another another quite controversial opinion about that is that we still are experiencing the first revolution. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, your usual host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. But today's show is going to be a wonderful deviation from the norm, the boring, awful norm. I'm just popping in today to say hello, to remind you of my very important existence, and to introduce you to Eilish Hart, my news editor at Medusa, who will lead us today through a discussion with three exceptional guests about the latest round of political mayhem in Kyrgyzstan. If you're not up to speed on your Central Asian geography, that's the nation sandwiched between Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and some country called China. There's a lot to cover on this episode, so I'll let Eilish take it away. On October 4th, voters in Kyrgyzstan cast their ballots in the parliamentary elections. Since then, the country has seen major protests, the election results annulled, and the president, Sorunbay Jimbekov, stepped down after bowing to pressure from the country's newly appointed prime minister, a politician by the name of Sadir Japarov, who was sitting in prison until just a few weeks ago. In the last 10 days, Japarov has gone on to become acting president while remaining prime minister, and election officials scheduled a repeat parliamentary vote only to see it postponed indefinitely. Meanwhile, lawmakers have been pushing through legislation like it's going out of style, and Kyrgyzstan is planning to hold a presidential election in January. For those of you who don't usually keep up with Kyrgyzstan, you, like me, are probably wondering how all of this happened in such a short period of time. So to get a fuller picture of what's going on, I invited three guests on the show to talk about the lead-up to the vote, the ensuing political crisis, and what might happen next. We understood that something definitely is going wrong with the elections. And we started understanding it, you know, long before the elections actually started. That's Bektur Iskender, the co-founder of Klop, an independent media organization based in Kyrgyzstan that's known for both its news coverage and investigative journalism. I asked Bektur what it was like covering the lead-up to the elections and whether the opposition protests were as spontaneous as they seemed to those of us watching from abroad. The thing that we did not expect to happen is, you know, that the consequences of these elections would be so dramatic. Like, I would not imagine, you know, president resigning or, you know, like, complete change of political powers going on and so on. I mean, this was something that I, I would not imagine mm, happening this year, but... Uh, all these wrongdoings that were going on during the elections, they actually did not surprise us that much because we have been witnessing, you know, how authorities were preparing to organize something like this. And again, having experience of living in Kyrgyzstan for, you know, my entire life, <laughs> seeing all the other elections, I could actually see the signs. The only thing that we could not expect is that the protest after the elections would be so large. And now I, re now I understand, of course, that 
after you know the results were published, even according to official results, we still had around 30 or 35 percent of voters not being represented by any party of the parliament. So you could imagine now that uh, there would be a certain backlash. We just could not imagine that it would uh, turn so dramatic, you know. For me, the biggest surprise was um, not even when the police started attacking protesters. Of course, for me, the biggest surprise was that people kept on fighting the police. I thought, you know, when, 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 when the police started attacking protesters on the 5th of October in the evening, I thought, okay, that's the end, you know, <laughs> like all the protest is over. Now we have like this, uh, you know, four parties that made it into the parliament and they will basically control everything in the country. And uh, whoever was against the results of the elections, well, you know, will have to get prepared to something else. I was already thinking, you know, how should we, for example, prepare to cover the local elections, which are planned for the next year. But then suddenly, then suddenly, you know, things uh, started changing. Bektur wasn't the only one caught off guard by how quickly things started developing after the protests on October 5th. The next day, election officials invalidated the voting results and the prime minister announced his resignation. Members of parliament replaced him with Sadir Japarov, a politician who protesters had freed from prison just hours earlier. But was Japarov taking power really what the protesters wanted? I asked Dr. Erika Murat, an associate professor at the National Defense University's College of International Affairs in Washington, D.C., whose research focuses on violence, mobilization, and security institutions in Eurasia. What's important is that Jim Bekov really acted silly and escalated peaceful protests on the first day when protesters convened. So the day after parliamentary elections, uh, reformist, quote unquote, reformist political parties and their supporters, they convened in central Bishkek and were demanding new elections, but they were peaceful, they were hopeful, they were orderly, and even, you know, they were really, there was really this sense of optimism that so many people came together to ask for a repeat of parliamentary elections. And then what Jim Bekov did is he deployed police violence against protesters and basically escalated tensions and allowed some especially radical members of the mob, or we don't even know who those people were really. Were they part of the opposition rally or some other, I don't know, crowds, but they attacked government headquarters or parliamentary building and his uh, headquarters in that building. And that's basically when things went out of control and Kyrgyzstan really entered political crisis. At this point, President Jambekov called the events a coup. On October 9th, he declared a state of emergency in the capital and disputed Japarov's status as prime minister. Nevertheless, the parliament confirmed Japarov on October 14th, and the first thing he did as prime minister was deliver a speech to a crowd of demonstrators outside of Bishkek's house of government. He called for Jambekov's resignation, and it didn't take long for this wish to come true. The next day, Jambekov stepped down, claiming that he wanted to avoid bloodshed. Before, you know, Jim Bekov made his 180 switch and decided he was going to step down, he talked about what was happening as an attempted coup. And I mean, obviously, the minute kind of protests break out, people start drawing comparisons about events in Belarus or past uprisings in Kyrgyzstan. So I wanted to ask what what's your 
kind of take on these comparisons or, or rather where you would situate what's happening? Yeah, there were elements of a, of a coup. And it, in fact, this was a coup. This was Jabhatov's party taking over and outmaneuvering everyone, the parliament and Jim Bekov, and maybe, you know, brokering deals. We don't know. Again, this is pure speculation, but brokering deals with Jim Bekov's former allies, powerful allies behind closed doors. So they maneuver, outmaneuvered everyone. So it was a coup, but it also highlighted at how how weak Jumbekov was and how insecure he was in his own position. And I think that's, you know, if we want to really dig deeper why he found himself in this situation is that he himself also came to power thanks to support of his predecessor, Azimbek Atambayev, who promoted Jimbekov to presidency, supported him during presidential elections, hoping that Jimbekov would be his loyal follower. But Jimbekov turned turned against Atambayev. He came to power thanks to those administrative resources, but then he turned against Atambayev and basically alienated himself from many other political camps in Kyrgyzstan. I'd actually like to follow up a little bit more on Japarov as kind of a, a character in Kyrgyzstan's politics. I mean, he was serving this 11-year prison sentence when he was suddenly released from jail and kind of catapulted his way to the top. So does he enjoy some degree of popular support? He is a charismatic leader. He's a nationalist populist who was able to gain support among some groups in Kyrgyzstan, especially in rural Kyrgyzstan, on calls to nationalize, nationalize the largest gold mine, Kumtor, that is currently mostly owned by a Canadian firm, and then, you know, to clean up corruption and so on. So his charisma, populism, nationalism does win him genuine support among the population. But of course, he also benefited from his uh, political allies who are, who've, who've been in the, in the, in politics for, for, you know, decades now and who are able to, who were able to use this moment of chaos and proclaim Japarov as his, as, as their leader, as the, as the leader of the country, basically. People who are not expecting Japarov to suddenly become such a central figure in the post-revolutionary period, if we can still call it revolution, of course, that's another big question. You know, I think people who didn't expect it were mostly from Bishkek. That's another another important thing about Kyrgyzstan is that most part of Bishkek completely misunderstands what's going on outside of Bishkek. We live, you know, in this privileged bubble, mainly a Russian-speaking bubble, you know. People who earn much more than, you know, the rest of the country who are able to travel, who are able to study. Who are able, I mean, we, 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 we definitely live a completely different life. We don't understand the struggles of people who live outside of Bishkek. Now, one of the ways, you know, that people were trying to solve their problems outside of Bishkek was by going to Russia and to work there as labor migrants. Now, again, something that people from Bishkek don't do that often as, you know, people from, from um, provinces of Kyrgyzstan do. And this is an important point. Sadr Japarov was especially, and still is, popular among our labor migrants. Now, our labor migrants are 
a very important um, part of the population. Like, I mean, first of all, we're talking about a lot of people. Currently, I think there are around, what, one million or something of Kyrgyz labor migrants. We should recheck this figure, but I think it's it's kind of close to this range, you know. So it's it's quite a huge proportion of the population that works in Russia. And uh, they, of course, have their families. So what Japarov did, there was a period in Japarov's biography when he was traveling all around Kazakhstan and Russia and meeting all these migrant communities. This is a very interesting part of his biography, which I think, if you know Japarov becomes an important political person in the future, we should research that period in his biography, because I think that it, it, during during that period, he's done something important that we in Kyrgyzstan did not notice at all. When was that? Do you know off the top of your head? That was from 2014 till 2017. So he he dedicated three years. He spent three years three years outside of Kyrgyzstan. Now, some so it should be understood why it happened. 2013, one of his protests against Kumtor, which was held in Karakol, the city in in the east of Kyrgyzstan, went a little bit out of control when they took the governor of this region as a hostage, which was a bit funny to be honest. I mean, they just basically locked him in a car, you know. <laughs> and surrounded the car and didn't want to re- to to let him out until you know he kind of uh, does something with this nationalization thing i mean it was not really as violent as it sounds you know it lasted not for a long time but it was used then by authorities as a reason to imprison japarov so he was officially convicted as a kidnapper because of this episode even though the governor who was kidnapped later on said that he doesn't have anything against Japarov and he's totally fine with what happened, you know. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a strange story. Japarov, understanding the, that he might be, you know, arrested at any moment, he left Kyrgyzstan. And that's exactly when he started his uh, kind of tour around Kazakhstan and Russia, meeting all the migrants and everything. Now, you should understand, you know, how migrants were feeling. So for them, it was like, suddenly their voices were heard, you know. They suddenly saw a politician, a former parliament member, a former, you know, government official who was so open to them, who was meeting them face to face, who was listening to their, you know, problems, you know, and uh, who was actually telling all the right things and doing it. And then he came back to Kyrgyzstan in 2017, knowing that he would be arrested which happened. And so he was spending his time in, in, in jail, you know, until 5th of October, when he was released. And by the time of his release, he had already had, you know, this enormous popularity, especially among labor migrants and their relatives. Of course, people in Bishkek were taken by surprise, because I think for many of people in Bishkek, they just hadn't known about this phenomenon at all. <laughs> you know, they were just not following this. And there were many, many people in Bishkek asking questions like, why Japarov? Where did he, you know, come from? When I was doing research for this podcast episode, I read an article published by Open Democracy that argued that the degree of popular support for Japarov was very apparent on Kyrgyz-language social media. I wanted to talk about this argument during the episode, and as it turned out, my third guest brought it up before I could even ask the question. Trying to, to gauge support for Japarov is difficult, um, just because as of two weeks ago, no one would have thought that he was relevant, like he was serving a really long jail jail term. 
But a really interesting article in Open Democracy by Golza Payelva and Jaldon Kutmaniliev looked into Facebook groups that were in support of Sadr Chaparov. And I think that this is a really interesting investigation into the way that like different platforms have different politics in Kyrgyzstan. That's Colleen Wood, a doctoral candidate in political science at Columbia University, who researches civil society and identity in Central Asia. She's also a regular contributor for the international affairs magazine, The Diplomat. I had become accustomed to Instagram as the social media platform where political discussions happen in Kyrgyzstan, both progressive and more conservative, that people have gotten really creative in how they use the different features on Instagram to to reach really large audiences. And like young people tell me like, oh, Facebook is for older people. Like, it's really not something that I use. I don't, only my parents use it. But this research from Bayelva and Kumaliev shows that there are these massive, massive groups in support of Chapatov. So one went from having, I think it was like 18,000, 30,000 members one night and the next day had almost 130,000 followers. And so trying to gauge like, okay, is that spike in interest tied to the fact that this person just appeared overnight and is now entered as a central figure in this revolution coup power change? Or is it more traditional, like bots were bought or followers were bought in ways that I think are pretty common globally, but especially in the region. But when it com- comes to trying to like understand the content or the angle at which people were supporting him, it seems that he represents a way, of, like a, an alternative path than people in power. So one of the big calls of youth groups in the early days of the protest was for lustration. So this is a Latin term that it's like to ceremonially purify and it was really big in Eastern European countries, like immediately after the collapse of communism, but then several times throughout following major power changes. And the idea being that if you served under the previous regime, you really should not and cannot be working for our new government, like new voices only. If you were in it in the past, you are compromised and we don't need you leading us. Um, so there was this call for illustration. And so you think like, okay, Japadov, who used to be a, um, a member of parliament before was arrested for an attempted coup in 2013 for hostage taking in 2013. Like, how does this constitute or like fulfill this goal of lustration? Like, why are these people who were demanding lustration not more upset about this? But I think that because he has been out of the political game for seven years, people do see him as this kind of anti-establishment, not necessarily tied down in the same, in the muck of the Matrayimovs, not tied out in the muck of the sixth parliamentary session. Um, so in a kind of strange way, he like checks the bill of lustration, um, especially I think for citizens who are outside of the capital. One of the things that they got into in that article was they kind of spoke about the divide that we're seeing rather than looking at it and in terms of kind of the like north-south divide you hear people talk about when they talk about Kyrgyzstan. They saw it more of like a Russophone versus Kyrgyz language divide. And especially in terms of if you're looking at what social media people are, are paying attention to. So I just wanted to ask like what you thought about taking that perspective on it. Yeah, I think that it um, actually is a really great way of thinking about social cleavages in the country, because like to a certain extent, I think the North South divide is not as neat as Russophone, Turkophone, Kyrgyzophone, but I think that the rural urban dynamics and the like centers of economy do kind of map onto the North South divide insofar as like a lot of the people in 
rural areas of Jalalabad, Osh, and Batkan oblasts like do not speak Russian, um, or if they do, it's really rudimentary. Um, uh, that's not entirely fair to say. Maybe they don't use it. Might be a better way of putting it. They don't use it. Although, I mean, a lot of a lot of children now in cities in, in the southern oblasts are going to s- Russian schools. I think which reflects economic trends of that a lot of people from these regions are migrating to Russia for work and to want their children to be educated in that. But I think, yeah, that the the Russian Kyrgyz language debate maps onto a, a rural urban discussion in which like, is it really fair that Bishkek with a population of a l- little bit over 1 million people in a country that itself is only 6 million people, like how much sway should these kind of Bishkek should these like capital dwellers get to have over national politics? So, and I think that the question of trying to understand the kind of qualitative differences in content is really, really important. And it's something that like I advocate as like a social scientist who works on the region, that this is like demonstrates the importance of outside experts building skills in both languages. Because I think that if you only speak Russian, you miss out on tons of information and uh, like the the broader i think anything outside of the capital what people are talking about what the the temperature check is um if you only speak russian you're going to miss out on that but on the flip side if you only speak kyrgyz you also miss out on this really like central you can call it like the agenda setting process is that I think that a lot of the youth groups and russian speaking folks in bishkek do have a lot of power in kind of setting up the terms of the discussion up front. And then the Kyrgyz speaking activists or those who are outside of the capital like end up having to respond to it. So yeah, I think that in addition to the kind of traditional media versus social media, and then even within social media, looking across platforms and different demographic details of who flocks to what platforms, but within both of those forms, looking at Russian versus Kyrgyz language could help us moving forward to try to explain the the public opinion with regards to I guess well, I I don't fully know how to call the 2020 events. Uh, is it count fully as a revolution? They don't have a name yet. Yeah, regime change. Like yeah, <laughs> the 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 political changes of October 2020. Um, how people how people think about them. With Japarov in power, the street protests have subsided, and the political battle appears to have moved to the parliament. Election officials tried to schedule a repeat parliamentary vote for December 20th but it was postponed indefinitely. Meanwhile, lawmakers have been pushing through legislation to change election procedures, and on top of the fact that Kyrgyzstan needs to hold two elections in the near future, there's talk of a referendum. There was an emergency session of parliament in which a new, there were competing bills pushed through. So one was to lower the threshold from seven to 3%. So that would be great for from a kind of representation perspective of giving these smaller, more niche, more reform oriented parties a shot at actually getting through and securing seats. This bill also was going to lower the deposit the parties had to pay in order to compete in elections from 5 million SOMs to 1 million SOM, making it just lowering the cost of entry, lowering the barrier of entry to smaller parties. So for example, the Reforma party famously crowdsourced its um, 5 million SOM deposit, which was pretty impressive. Normally this comes from big business, AKA organized crime. Yeah, so those two things, which are seen as like progressive wins, these were the demands of the activist groups. Like, wow, great, okay, we're gonna do these new elections in a way that people actually want and that will maybe create a new parliament that will do what we want them to do. But then at that same extraordinary meeting, 
Parliament also pushed through a bill that walked back the new elections and opened up the possibility for a constitutional reform. So now there are not going to be elections on December 20th for a new parliament. The logic of this given is twofold. One, that they're saying that it's just like extraordinarily draining to do elections at all. And in a context where Kyrgyzstan has been struggling with the pandemic and has been struggling with economic fallout resulting from drop in reparations, it's really a stretch um, for this country to be able to put on two elections in the span of three months. So the the first logic before was like, we need we should just wait to have elections until we're a little bit more economically and epidemiologically stable, which interpret that however you will. But then the other logic that was given, I think more worryingly by Japadov in an interview with Al Jazeera was that Kyrgyzstan moved to a parliamentary system too quickly and that the country is not like culturally or like civically developed enough to handle this form of government. And that he thinks that a referendum to change Kyrgyzstan's electoral system to a presidential presidential system would be beneficial for its like political growth. And he's looking into changing the constitutional rules about whether the sitting prime minister is allowed to run for president. So there's kind of these like two things that happened at once, which just means like the uncertainty over what's happening with Kyrgyzstan's political vacuum will continue. I think that the whiplash over new developments of, okay, now parliament gathered again and did what? Okay, this guy announced himself head of this and then what? Like that's going to continue until... I guess at minimum, the referendum is passed or decided on. So we're still deep in murky waters, but it does seem like some political order has emerged. Um, It's just hard to get a sense of how that political order is received, both in Bishkek and in the more rural areas of the country, that remains to be seen. I'm kind of hearing two things here. It sounds like he's saying like, we don't have time to pull together an election. But we do have time to pull together a referendum, a democratic referendum on making the country less democratic. Yeah. And given how the last referendum was just kind of shoved through without much public discussion, it is worrying to hear this emphasis on constitutional referendum by public vote, as opposed to this being something discussed in parliament, discussed openly with input from citizens and something that goes through the proper procedures. Local legal, legal scholar Sonia Tuktukazieva just did a talk with Azatuk about the the rushed process of, of rolling back the new elections. And she's really, really upset with the, how unconstitutional this thing was. Like given the emphasis on legal framework, on pravavoyporda, it's really a huge step backwards for parliament to, after all of these weeks of protesting, of fighting, of pushing for political change, to now have, have it culminate in this of like parliament voting for a super undemocratic move forward is really frustrating. But I think people, as news of this gets out, I would expect some of the younger and more mobilized activist networks to be really vocal against it. I'm disappointed with our parliament as usual. I mean, of course, I would expect it. I'm just amazed at, you know, how people can be so covert. Like, it's it's just crazy, you know, how 120 people, of course, not all of them, but the majority of them, 
I mean, it's already the third time they are completely changing their, you know, political direction just because the president changes. This parliament started working when Atambayev was still a president and they were like, you know, I mean, mo most of them were, were devoted, you know, fans of Atambayev back then. But then as soon as Atambayev became a bad guy, <laughs> they switched, you know, their, their mind immediately and, and started, you know, praising Jan Bekov. And, and, and now, of course, they hate Jan Bekov and, and they, you know, try to be as close to Japarov as possible. And uh, unfortunately, what is going on is that Japarov and whoever is behind him, I still don't understand, are trying to seize the power and gain as much control as possible. And uh, in order to do that, they are trying to change the constitution. They are trying to change the format of parliament elections. They, they are trying to make uh, president a more powerful person. I mean, another problem with Japarov is that he changes his mind so often. We already published a couple of stories about how Japarov changed his mind, you know, on certain issues during last two weeks, which is crazy. I mean, it's just like, why, why does he do that? I don't understand. And this parliament is basically so, as I said, so covered. I mean, they are afraid of everything. They are especially afraid of, you know, criminal groups or whatever. I mean, but, but they don't have enough, you know, like they are parliament members. They, they have this power. They, they can change uh, so much to the better, but they absolutely not interested in that. Mm, I'm very disappointed. And that's why, you know, it's really hard to expect what's what's going to happen in Kyrgyzstan, for example, in, the, in even in the next two weeks or so. Now the plan is they are trying to initiate the referendum on changing the constitution. This will be, to be honest, quite a disaster because I think it's weird to change the rules during such a turbulent period when it was not something that people demanded for. Like when people went to protest, their demand was clear and simple. They wanted re-election according to the constitution that we have now, just it should be fair and free and so on. That's it, you know, it was so simple. Listening to Colleen and Bakhtur talk about the most recent developments in parliament, it was clear that Kyrgyzstan's politicians were straying beyond the demands of the protesters in civil society. But Dr. Murat maintained some optimism that Kyrgyzstan might find a legal way out of the crisis. So Kyrgyzstan is one of those countries, and perhaps we see similarities now in Belarus, but also during Euromaidan in Ukraine, is when the, the state it's, is, is so backward and is so corrupt and detached from the society where, while the society is really full of activism and demand and civil society networks that want better governance, want better representation, less corruption. And the state and the incumbents, so specifically uh, the president that had to re resign, Jane Bekov, he was blind to that or incapable of understanding the real social and political processes that were happening in the non-state realm. And unfortunately, the current acting president, he also seems to be detached from the demands of the activists, political and civic activists. I think I think he is repeating the mistakes of June Bekov. He and he is risking of seeing protests against his regime again in the before or after next, you know, the rerun 
uh, of parliamentary elections. Chaparov is trying to change constitution now to make presidency more powerful. And the next parliamentary elections, they really, there is an opportunity for, to, to stabilize Kyrgyzstan again and allow all major political parties enter the parliament again, win seats in the parliament again, because, um, this has been the case in the past 10 years since the previous regime change in April 2010, that a system that was set in place after um, April 2010 allowed all political parties win a little bit, but not everything. So, you know, have everyone lose something and win something. So kind of created an equilibrium within the parliament and all major political showdowns took place within the walls of the parliament building and not you know, outside on the streets against those in power. And hopefully this equilibrium will be again regained in repeat elections. But of course, now a lot will depend on how Japarov will be able to actually set up the conditions for that and allow a more fair and transparent competition among political parties. So not repeat what Jane Beckov did in September, October. I also asked Colleen to make some predictions about what might happen next. How do you see things going forward? I'll preface this with that it's super hard to make any predictions, let alone in one in a like situation that's already proven itself to be super unstable and really fickle and like if I feel like I've gotten whiplash like following the pendulum back and forth. But I will say that, yeah, the parliamentary decision to, on the one hand, cancel the new elections and put forward this proposal for a referendum that would switch the country to more of a presidential system, but at the same time proposing to lower the threshold and lower the barriers of entry, that I think the fact that both of these are on the table means that the battle isn't over yet, that I think that there will have to be more discussion about which path is the best way forward. and. To that extent, like one of the only predictions that I feel sort of comfortable about making is the potential role for youth activists in keeping this issue front and center. So this is the young people who back in November and December were leading the Reaxia protests, one, two, and three, that all happened right in a row until COVID led to shutdown. But I think what's been interesting to watch with these like civic movements with these young people who are very explicit about the fact that they are apolitical, that they are not, they don't have political ambitions, that they have become very practiced in articulating specific political demands and have gotten better about channeling their goals through the formal political channels. So I think whereas a few years ago, youth activists could get a thousand people out on the street, they could get people to march against something, against the powers that be, against Atambayev, against Jan Bekov. But what's been really special and inspiring in the last few months is how specific these youth activists have gotten. And I think there has been this little proliferation of civic movements in Bishkek in the last few months, but they're also, I've seen them popping up in Osh, in Karakol, that they're also happening out in the regions, that there's a consciousness of needing to involve the other oblasts in this discussion and to like recognizing that it's not enough just to say we don't like corruption we don't like your politics but making really specific demands so like the moving to the three percent was a specific demand that came from one group called bashtan bashta and i think that that is promising moving forward that if there is this attempt to shove through a constitutional referendum that we can expect to see these young organizers out and 
protesting against it and organizing to get people to vote against it. Bektur also felt that the political crisis was still in its early days and even thought it was too soon to put a label on it. Is there a name for everything that's happening in Kyrgyzstan yet? I think it's it's too early to say that it's a revolution. We once called our 2005 revolution a revolution. And, you know, and then we were like, the president who came after that was so much worse <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> was it truly a revolution? I have another, another quite controversial opinion about that is that we still are experiencing the first revolution. It just started in 2005. It's, it just has not finished yet. We just have, you know, kind of new iterations. We're like a startup, you know, Kyrgyzstan is like, is like a startup. We, we kind of had, you know, this alpha version of Kyrgyzstan. And then we upgrade it, and then something doesn't work. We, then we do the new upgrade, new update. So we now have like Kyrgyzstan 1.4 or something, you know. Like this update is one of the craziest ones, I should say. So we'll see. Like we will, we'll be able, I think, to give adequate, more or less, you know, <laughs> adequate comments about, you know, what's going on and adequate evaluation of what's going on only after the parliament elections if, if because you know if 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 corruption continues if they keep on promoting you know pro government parliament members or people who would be just you know willing to do whatever the president whoever that would be you know ask them to do then we we changed nothing you know that that would be the the worst scenario and then we'll have to fight for the same things again from from you know from the scratch the cycle will repeat and it will inevitably lead to a new political crisis I hope they understand it and I hope, you know, that there would be positive changes. What I think is important right now for us, civil society in Kyrgyzstan to do is to invest into education as much as possible. I was, you know, very much thrilled by what was going on in Belarus since August. I was in Belarus like in 2019 and saw, you know, how civil society became so much stronger actually during the period of the of, you know, of this all possible sorts of repressions against, you know, civil society. And I think Belarus was a great example of, you know, how many small communities can then join their efforts and become a really strong power. I think we in Kyrgyzstan have so much more opportunities to do this because we don't have those restrictions that Belarus had all these years. And I would love us, you know, everybody in Kyrgyzstan who is worried about the situation to invest in all possible sorts of education, especially outside of Bishkek. If we start investing our resources into educating at least a small group of people, or if we you know also learn something from them, if we build you know more bridges between Bishkek and the rest of the country, if we you know put all our efforts to create this many, many small educated communities all around the country of people who would be very conscious when it comes to the civil rights and to the country's development and, you know, to um, whatever will make life in Kyrgyzstan safer, freer, you know, and uh, richer. <laughs> I mean, that would be amazing. And that, that's, that, that would be our best response to everything that is 
happening right now in Kyrgyzstan, which we might be very upset with. Since Medusa primarily covers Russia, I thought it was only fitting to finish each interview by asking my guest for a personal take on Moscow's role in the events going on in Kyrgyzstan. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on uh, what Moscow's role is or or why the Kremlin might be sitting back a bit and seeing what happens? Interestingly, Russia may have played a role as well in, in completing Japarov's ascent to power. So Moscow has been sitting back throughout the crisis in Kyrgyzstan, and this is not the first time that Moscow never really took an active role in making statements on what it prefers to see happen in Kyrgyzstan. But one fact that we can analyze here is that Putin sent his deputy chief of administration, Kozak, who met with Japarov and Jinbekov at the same time when Jinbekov was still the president, elected president. I mean, he was the president, the, the legitimate president. And we don't know the details of that meeting. And Jinbekov, as president, never really disclosed what were the details. But after the meeting, in the days following the meeting, Japarov became really loud in his calls for Jinbekov to resign. And Jim Bekov did step down from his position. So it really, the connection here is, is uncanny, uncanny for many in Kyrgyzstan because I think the perception here is that behind the closed doors, Kozak really showed support. And this is pure speculation. Of course, we don't have the, the any transcripts from, from that meeting, but he, uh, Japarov was emboldened in his calls for resignation. And Jean Bekov seemed a lot uh, weaker, uh, the, you know, in the days following the, me- the meeting. And the speculations there is that Kozak showed support towards Japarov and dismissed Jean Bekov's attempts to stay in power. Russia is totally okay with unfair elections. You know, we can understand. <laughs> I mean, all these observers from, you know, Commonwealth of Independent States usually the most useless observers you can imagine at the elections, and mostly from Russia, they, of course, said that, oh, yeah, absolutely, these elections were held, you know, freely and fairly, and everything was fine, you know. (laughs) So Russia was totally okay with how things were going until, you know, things just started getting out of everybody's control. I think Russia is still in this process of trying to understand who should they work with. I would not be surprised if they still haven't found. Thing is, Kyrgyzstan itself has a, ro- a lot of actors, a lot of, you know, political players, let's say. It's really hard to understand who supports whom. People in Kyrgyzstan switch their positions, you know, with a record-breaking speed. The same politician in Kyrgyzstan can have a history of being both in opposition, in civil society, in government, in the presidential administration, whatever, and all within like 10 years or something. <laughs> you cannot really rely on anybody in Kyrgyz politics. And that's why I think Russia is a bit, is a bit, you know, in this chaotic period when they themselves don't understand who should they work with now, like who should they, who who can they rely on? But then they also have the competition, you know, because I'm pretty sure that probably the U.S. is also looking for their allies right now in the Kyrgyz politics, trying to understand who should they work with. China is kind of looking for their own allies because uh, with, you know, Japarov's rhetorics of nationalizing everything, China might lose control of (laughs) quite a lot of things. They need to have a stable government in Kyrgyzstan that will allow them, you know, to keep on 
exploring our gold mines or whatever. So Russia has its interests in Kyrgyzstan, that much is clear. But when I asked her about Moscow's role in the crisis, Colleen Wood was adamant about the fact that we shouldn't overstate the extent of the Kremlin's involvement. It seems like your take is that this is not a geopolitical crisis. So I'd like to hear about why you're not convinced that the Kremlin has a role here or... It's just because it doesn't make a ton of sense for Russia to like be interested in causing instability when I think that like my reading of it is that Putin and Russia broadly like just want there to be stability in their backyard and want there to be stability with the partners that they work most closely with. So Kyrgyzstan is a member of the Eurasian Economic Union. Like it doesn't benefit Russia economically to have this type of uncertainty and this type of economic implosion um, in his backyard. So from the perspective of like, did Russia have a role in undermining Kyrgyzstan's elections? I think is a resounding no. And I think like whoever was in the position of running the ship doesn't really matter per se. I mean, I think like saying that Kyrgyzstan is one of the closest allies of, or a closest partner of Russia is off the mark, given that when President Jambekov went to visit Moscow, just before the election, Putin called him by the wrong name. He called him Shariman Sharipovich. So I think like a bit of kind of chauvinism is, is definitely present there. But I think what was interesting was the way that Kyrgyzstani social media has reacted to two things. One was Putin in a presser kind of talking seemingly a little bit off the cuff about Kyrgyzstan, but used a pretty condescending tone to describe its development as a post-Soviet country and said that the country is still learning to how to have a government, how to run itself. Um, and I think people were really upset by the tenor of these comments. And I saw a lot of sarcastic responses in both Russian and in Kyrgyz about sovereignty, about how Japadov responds to this is going to kind of how he sees his role, like his relationship vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, and the other that people are really reacting to was a meeting with the Minister of Foreign Affairs from Russia and from Kyrgyzstan, and they are going back and forth. And, and the Kyrgyz official says something in Kyrgyz, and Lavrov responds, like, you need to respect your host, respect the Hazayev. And so people on um, Instagram and on Twitter are freaking out of, like, was he talking to our official? Was he talking to the translator? What does it mean if he like cut off our leader who is speaking Kyrgyz and told him to respect their hosts? Like, I think that there's this geopolitical awareness is there. And I think people are there's a, like a little bit of tension over um, Russia's involvement. But I think as like approximate cause of the unrest, it's really unfair to like look directly to to Russia for that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think like it seems like we're seeing a bit of an interesting reversal here because, I mean, most of the time the question is like, what is the Kremlin going to do about Kyrgyzstan? And now it sounds like people in Kyrgyzstan are saying like, what is Bishkek going to do about the Kremlin? Yeah, for sure. I think that that's a really apt way of putting it of like people have come to expect that like, OK, their leader needs to do something to like either like lay down at the feet of Russian authorities or like have this kind of staunch like trying to push themselves away and be more independent. So I think, yeah, that, that makes total sense that people are waiting to see, okay, like what is Shafadov gonna do with regards to, to Putin and to Moscow? The Naked Prophet is a podcast from Medusa, our only English language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening and come back soon. Mm -hmm.